We are uh, finishing up our series on the book of Ephesians today, and we get to talk about everyone's favorite subject, spiritual warfare, right? Now, here's the thing. Um, That might not be something you really want to talk about, Um, but Paul ends this letter with this, with this topic, which means it might be something we should think about and give our attention to. So let's listen to God's word. A reading from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord and Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful that uh, by your spirit it becomes effective in our lives uh, to convict us, to encourage us, uh, to change us. Uh, And we pray that um, that's what would happen here this morning, uh, that because of your love for us in Jesus and by the power of your spirit, uh, you would make us more and more like him, and that we would be uh, a temple for your spirit, and that we would be able to uh, declare your excellencies uh, to the surrounding world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had, uh, maybe when I was growing up, it was more normal. It's less normal now. Our elementary school ended at sixth grade, and so our middle school was seventh through ninth grade. Uh, And and that was pretty cool because that meant you entered high school still at the top of the heap in middle school. And, uh, And what was really cool about that as well is that you entered into high school sports, right? And in most high schools, ninth grade sports aren't that important. But because ninth grade were the top of the middle school, they became very important. It was like varsity. And so every self respecting boy in my ninth grade class signed up for football. Now, I mean real football, not uh, worldwide soccer. I mean football. And um, this was the first full contact with pads uh, tackle football that we could play. There weren't any tryouts. You just signed up. So a lot of us signed up. So many, in fact, that you could actually field two teams. An A team for the starters, kind of like the varsity, and then the B team 
like the junior varsity. Now guess which one I was on, right? I was the shortest guy in the grade. And I only got into one play on the B team the whole year. It was a kickoff return. Never touched the ball. And you know what? That suited me just fine. I got to wear the jersey on game days, right, during the school, during the school day. I got all dressed up in pads and helmet, no dirt stains, of course. I got to stand on the sidelines dressed during the A games, right? I got all the glory of being a football player without hardly any of the stress or anxiety of playing. Now, those are the kind of people Paul is addressing here. Remember, he's writing to churches where believers have a junior varsity mentality. The way they think about it, they're, they're new to the faith. They're not ethnically Jewish. They're getting picked on by their culture. They just came out of some wild living. They shouldn't expect much, and much shouldn't be expected of them. That's where they're coming from. And Paul's whole point has been, there are no junior varsity Christians. If you trust Jesus, you have been eternally loved You are forever forgiven. You are considered his treasure and sealed by his spirit. Gentiles and Jews brought together is God's secret plan of salvation from before time. They, these churches, are God's temple. And now they can live like it with their language, their thoughts, their bodies, their time, and their relationships. Here we are at the end and Paul is summing up everything with this passage And he's saying, you're not junior varsity. You don't get to sit on the bench. You're in the game, so you better stand and dress for it. Stand and fight, Paul says, to these Christians and to us. Now, this speaks uh, to many of us here who don't think of ourselves as varsity Christians. And many who would really try to avoid this conflict altogether. But beyond that, we read this passage and we think of spiritual warfare, right? Exercising demons, or labeling the next bad dictator or even president the Antichrist, or living and talking like you're playing some kind of Christian Dungeons and Dragons for real. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. But I want to acknowledge that some of you might be wanting to tune out. You might see this as some of the worst of Christian subculture, and would rather this, package, this passage just be bracketed out of the Bible. God's word is trustworthy. So give me a chance to explain it. Now, this is what we need to see today. The struggle is real. So put on God's armor and don't judge by appearances. So first, the struggle is real. Verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The first thing to note, and most important for some of us, is that Christians do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? It's it's who are not our enemies. In the passage, uh, Paul is at the natural point of addressing relationships with outsiders. Going back into chapter 5, into chapter 4, in fact, he's dealt with relationships in the church community, and then he deals with relationships in the household. Uh, Husband-wife, parents-kids, slave-masters, and then naturally, the way these quote-unquote house tables would go is you talk about outsiders, people outside the family and people outside the church. 
This is the slot where Paul is talking about outsiders. And what Paul is saying is, outsiders are not the enemy. We usually think of anyone getting in our way as the enemy. Whether family, friend, stranger. Or we can think of those people out there who are different culturally, politically, ethnically, religiously, whatever. But if our struggle is not with flesh and blood, then those people, whoever they are, they cannot be the enemy. That means Christians can treat every human being as a potential object of mercy, even a potential friend. A Christian's true enemy is never the human being in front of them or a group of humans uh, in a particular religion or political party or government office or academic field or culturally important position. If our true enemy is not a human being, we should not be treating or thinking human beings, thinking of human beings as our true enemies. And I'm looking at the political junkies out there and the social justice and culture warriors, people on either side of the cultural divide who demonize the other side, even if you only do that on social media. Here, Christians are told explicitly, do not demonize people. And if you do so, you actually play into the enemy's hands. Instead, Paul says the real enemy, the one who deserves no mercy or quarter, are the evil forces led by Satan himself. He names the devil, rulers and authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. These are not humans, though sometimes they work through humans and human institutions. They could be personal, individual, spiritual beings or impersonal forces that work evil nonetheless. The power behind the Roman state that glorified violence and sexual aggression... The spirit behind the economic system that reduces people to dollar signs or labor inputs. The values of the culture that says your only responsibility is authenticity to yourself. The inspiration for people who prey on children and the institution's incentives to look the other way. This isn't humans being imperfect. There is evil in this world beyond what humans can do collectively. And I'm sure you don't need me to go into all the state-sponsored genocide and murder and famines over the last hundred years. These forces, led by Satan, want to divide, conquer, and devour God's creation, humans being the chief prize. This kind of evil is parasitic. It ultimately wants to kill and consume its host. So its goals are hostility, envy, division between humans, doubt, fear, self-loathing within humans. Whatever dehumanizes will do. Whether it's reducing people by their skin color or sexual appeal or productivity potential, anything. Whatever gets you seeing other humans as your enemy. Denying them mercy, kindness, denying their humanity. Or whatever gets you hating yourself. That's what these forces are after. Whether it's the cruel Roman Empire or self-sufficient Silicon Valley, either make great hosts for evil. So Satan and evil forces are the enemy, right? Demonize demons, not people. The trouble is that that means there is no neutral territory. The struggle is real, and you don't get to sit it out. If your enemy was just human or a group of humans, you might be able to retreat somewhere to avoid the conflict. But if your enemy is ultimately spiritual, there's nowhere to go to get out of the conflict. And that's part of the point Paul is making. You Ephesians don't get to absent yourself from the fight. 
Evil forces are coming for you whether you like it or not. Oftentimes there's a conflict maybe in your group of friends or amongst your co-workers and people ask you, you know, what side are you on? You might say, I'm Switzerland. What does that mean? I'm Switzerland means I'm neutral, right? Because Switzerland is famous for being a neutral country, right? In the sound of music, the von Trapps escaped the Nazis by fleeing on foot over the Alps to neutral Switzerland. Once there, they are safe from Nazi evil, right? Listen, in this struggle, there is no Switzerland for you. Your house is not Switzerland. Your office is not Switzerland. Vacation is not Switzerland. Church is not Switzerland. We want to find a place where we can sit out the battle. But the struggle is real and you don't get to sit it out. In fact, this struggle with evil is part of what it means to be human. Do we really have to do this? This whole spiritual warfare thing? Can't I just do spiritual private piety, avoid the bad stuff, right? Give a little out of my surplus, call it a good life? No. The first humans, Adam and Eve, they were placed in this beautiful garden, and their job was to tend, defend, and extend that garden over the face of the earth. And that meant engaging evil forces. Genesis 3 makes clear, evil was there from the beginning, challenging them. And part of their calling and mission was to face down and fight that evil. Adam and Eve failed. So a second Adam came, Jesus. And you know what we see Jesus doing in the gospel so many times it gets confusing for us? He fights demons. And he faced the devil at the beginning of his public ministry and also at the end. And on the cross, Paul explains, Jesus defeated these powers. The church is is this new reconciled humanity. It's exhibit A to the universe that it is liberated from evil. The church is on the front line of this battle. So both by being a son or daughter of Adam and by being renewed in the new Adam, Jesus, you are meant to fight evil forces. You cannot escape the battle. The Bible begins with spiritual warfare. In the middle, Jesus' ministry is spiritual warfare. And clearly at the end of the Bible, Revelation is spiritual warfare. God intends for us to participate in this fight against evil. So, put on God's armor. Look at verses 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The main word here is stand. In many sports, if you're sitting, you're riding the bench. You're not playing. The opposite of sitting is standing. To stand means to engage the enemy, to join the battle. Christians are to stand against evil. And the way they do that is by being strengthened in God. And you get strength from God by putting on his armor. When you intentionally clothe yourself in God's armor, it means you are ready and engaging in the battle. And you are able to stand You are ready to get out on the field. This is the opposite of my opening illustration about football. I was happy to wear the uniform, right, when I didn't have to get on the field and take any risk. These Christians are facing the opposite problem. The battle's coming to them regardless, whether they're sitting or standing. They're on the field. It'd be like going out on a football field without any pads or helmet. Paul is saying, be dressed for battle. Clothe yourself in God's armor. Now, what is that armor? 
verses 14 to 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I would caution you from trying to overly define what all these specifically mean. The way this metaphor is used elsewhere suggests it's meant to create a general impression. So we don't have to try to sort out what Paul means by making righteousness the breastplate and salvation the helmet. It's already been said elsewhere in Ephesians. You put on the new man. You clothe yourself in Christ. You wrap yourself in the gospel. Like many little boys when I was young, I had a fascination with war, which led me to reading about war and ultimately to my love for history. And at that young age, I had these full camouflage fatigues, right, from head to toe, hat to boots. On certain weekend days when there wasn't much going on, I would plan the night before to dress up in my fatigues. I'd jump out of bed, put the uniform on, get my toy gun, and I was a soldier for the day. Right, the uniform determined the course of the day. And that's true for all of us. Even in casual California, we think about what we're wearing. It does communicate things about us. We are cognizant of it. Even if we're just dressing for the weather, right? You check your app. What's the weather going to be? Okay, that's what I'll dress like. Paul is saying, check your app. The weather is war. So dress for it. Put on the truth of the gospel, the peacemaking and reconciling it brings, the gift of salvation, the exhaustive righteousness of God, the word of God. You hold these so close and are so conscious of them, it's like you're wearing them. Because the way evil makes war is through lies. Verse 11, Paul talks about standing against the schemes of the devil. Earlier he called it cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Verse 16, Paul calls these the flaming darts of the evil one, right? They're like lies that come in and lodge in our heart. Anything that darkens our understanding, grows deceitful desires, hardens our hearts and makes us callous to others. Paul is talking about lies. Satan made war on Adam and Eve and on Jesus ultimately with lies. Now, what are some of the lies? Well, there's big obvious ones. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me to be happy. You can have everything you want without God. Sometimes these lies are temptations, right? Lies that justify you doing something wrong. Like this. No one knows how much you've suffered, how hard you've worked, how much you've gone through. No one should begrudge you a little pleasure. Or this person has all these wonderful things and you know you deserve them more. There's nothing wrong with a little bitterness and envy. Or you really will get around to using all this money and time for God's kingdom. So have your fun first. Or this part of your life is a mess, but this other part you're doing really well in, that kind of even things out, doesn't it? You shouldn't worry too much about your failures. Other times there are accusations, lies that condemn your actions or thoughts that are wrong, right? I'm suffering because I'm being punished. I need to work off the penalty for my sin. Or no one sins like this over and over after being given so much, there's no way I could be a Christian. Or... I can't just focus on Jesus after all the terrible, unmendable damage I've done in the past. Any of these ring a bell? The armor of God, wrapping ourselves in Christ, is meant to fend off Satan's lies. 
One way to think about it is talk back to Satan. God's salvation, righteousness, word, truth, spirit enable you to talk back against the lies. Satan's talking to you, so talk back. If I suffer, Jesus will meet me in it and he'll use it for my good. If God didn't withhold his only son, will he hold anything back from me? I will not be satisfied with anything other than God himself. God can't be punishing me for my sin, otherwise Jesus' death wasn't enough. And if the son of God died for sins, there's no amount of sins too great for him to forgive. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all my sins, all my wrongs, all the damage I've done will be mended in this world or the next. The armor of God enables you to talk back to the lies that you are hearing and believing. One way this frequently works for me is that I might um, be down about sin in my life, hearing lies about how offensive I am or what a failure I am or no good use to anybody. And I can hear and believe that for a while, hours, maybe days. Eventually, though, I do put on God's armor, and I begin talking back. And I say something like, you're right. My sin is offensive, lower than I thought I could go. I can't imagine anyone forgiving me or using me for good. And yet Jesus died for me. Wow. I see God's love for me in a new and better way than I ever did before. Thanks, Satan, for leading me into deeper worship. See, Luther loved to say that the devil couldn't bear being mocked. See, the attacks are going to come. And when you're wearing God's armor, the attacks can actually drive you back to the cross and deeper into God's irreducible love for you. Use them. Talk back to Satan. And don't do it alone. Right here we read about this warrior dressed in armor and we think of an individual soldier. Right, But this was the gear of a Roman legionnaire. The foot soldier was only as effective uh, if he was in a well-trained formation. We know that Paul isn't thinking about only a solitary soldier because in verse 16 he talks about the shield of faith for extinguishing the flaming arrows coming at him. And you get this picture of a lone soldier with a shield, right? You're like they're, they're trying to avoid the arrows and block them all, right? That's not what these people would be thinking. If an army was facing archers, they would form a tortoise formation. The soldiers would get very close together. And guys up front would be holding their shields, half covering them and, the other, and half covering the other person. And then people behind them, guys behind them, would be holding their shields up over everyone's head. So that the whole formation was, was shielded by shields. And arrows couldn't penetrate them. See, sometimes we will be fighting evil on our own. Like our thoughts when we can't sleep at night. But often we need brothers and sisters to fight with us. We need each other's shield of faith. You talk back to Satan, often with the help of others. Now there's one more tool Paul mentions here that seems to be the most important of all in this struggle. It's prayer. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer isn't just another weapon. It doesn't even get a designated piece of armor. Prayer is like the under armor. Right? Putting on God's armor means talking back to Satan, but more so talking to God. Prayer. Prayer is the ultimate essential weapon, the grounding and foundation for putting on God's armor. Trying to clothe yourself in God's armor, right, to be able to resist the lies of evil without prayer, it's like trying to clothe yourself when you have broken ribs. 
I've had to do that before. It's really difficult. If there's only one spiritual thing you do this week besides coming to church, let it be prayer as often as possible. If you don't know what to pray, pray Scripture, particularly the Psalms. If you want help, there are great resources, like praying the hours throughout the day. I use the Church of England. They have a great site that can lead you in prayer. Or the bulletin, right? The bulletin is meant to help you throughout the week. Take notes and just pray through it on a daily basis. And we like to pray a lot here, but in the next several months, we hope to add more prayer to our service and prayer ministry. And Elder Matt Cabot's going to help put that together for us. In that evil hour of darkness, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his Father that his cup would pass, what did he command his disciples? Do a Bible study? Memorize catechism? Take up a collection for the poor? Work to get new Jerusalem city leaders? No. He said, watch and pray. Temptation and evil are coming for you, so watch and pray. And it's exactly what Paul says here in verse 18. The best and most important way to engage this battle with evil is to talk to God. Finally, don't judge the battle by appearances. Look at verses 19 and 20. And also for me, pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. See, Paul here was imprisoned, and he has appealed his case to Caesar. So he is either in Rome now or will soon be heading there to make his case before Caesar. Paul here is telling the Ephesian believers to stand and fight, but he is sitting in chains. Is Paul practicing what he's preaching? Absolutely. Opponents of Christianity are trying to snuff it out, and instead its greatest spokesman is being taken to the heart of the empire, on the empire's dime, guarded by empire soldiers on the empire's dime to speak to the dictator of the world. The greatest human authority is about to hear the truth about the cosmos from a man in chains. This makes sense because this is how God wins. He starts with an elderly and fertile couple. He frees a little tribe of slaves. He chooses a little shepherd boy to be king. His son Jesus is born into a no-name family from a no-name town, has nowhere to lay his head, builds a following of outcasts and rejects, is hounded and rejected by the good, decent folk, then is tortured and crucified by Romans. Doesn't sound like victory. Yet this is how Satan and evil forces are defeated. Jesus satisfied God's righteousness on the cross and makes a mockery of the world's values and hierarchies by rising from the dead. What does winning look like? Well, it can look like losing. It is dying and rising. Winning looks like resurrection. Well, great, Bob, what does that mean for me? Well, what it means is stand back up when you get knocked down. It means don't give up just because you haven't stood up for a while. It it means don't believe the lie that evil is winning, whether in your heart or in the world. The same forces out there are trying to destroy you too. So when you resist the lie of envy, you're fighting social isolation. When you resist the lie of lust, you're fighting sex trafficking. When you resist the lie of greed, you're fighting many of the causes of poverty. But your ability to stand against evil and the hope that one day you'll be righteous is based only on the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. 
being graciously applied to you. Winning looks like resurrection, and that's what it's going to take. So don't keep score. There's only one score that matters. Jesus won. Sin and death, zero. Celebrate the victories, however small. Know that all the defeats, big and small, are redeemed in Jesus. For me, there are days when I wake up in the morning, prayerfully clothe myself in the gospel, and I go about my day in God's armor until I drift off to sleep that night. Those are amazing days, no matter the circumstances. But then there are days when I don't do that at all. And no matter the circumstances, those are really bad, ugly days. The good news is one of the ways to know if you're a Christian is that the battle keeps coming to you. You can't escape it, even if you don't want to try anymore. You're in the game. You're on the field no matter what. It's one great way to know if you're a Christian. The bad news is if you're a Christian, the battle keeps coming to you, and you can't escape it even if you don't want to try anymore. You're in the game, on the field, no matter what. So you might as well dress for it. You might as well put on God's armor. One practice in my ninth grade football season, uh, we were running receiver routes. I, they had to put me somewhere, so they put me in receivers. And uh, <clears throat> we were running these routes, and the receivers would go out, and they were defended by safeties. And I was running this deep route, and the ball was coming to me. The coach threw me the ball, and I'm sprinting. And I'm reaching out for the ball. It's over my shoulders, and I actually leave the ground, right? I'm jumping out. The ball is touching my fingertips. I'm looking like Adele Beckham Jr. right now. And right as the ball touches my fingertips... I hit a brick wall. The safety comes in at full speed from the opposite direction, helmet first into my chest. I get knocked back many feet onto my back. We were right in front of the linemen practicing, and as adults, they still talk about that hit. There was an audible gasp as they saw, they saw the whole thing unfolding, right? And I was like this lamb led to the slaughter. <clears throat> I was dazed, and I got back up, and I fell right back down onto my hands and knees. And after about 30 seconds, I got up and kind of wobbled back to the line and the coach said why don't you take a few minutes crossing go sit down over there so I sat down the next day I'm in the locker room and the head coach stops me he said Crossland I'm gonna start calling you Timex because you take a licking and you keep on ticking (laughs) now that Timex is an old watch and that was the tagline takes a licking and keeps on ticking a watch is a device that tells the time you put it on your wrist It's not a computer, it's not a phone, it doesn't play music. It just tells you the time. (laughs) What does winning look like for us today? Someone has said winning or success consists of getting up just one more time than you fall. Winning is stand back up. You follow Jesus, you will take a licking from evil forces. You will fall down multiple times, but it's in those falls, getting back up, keeping on ticking, you realize God is still there. His armor still works when you put it on, even after all these years and failures. He's always there, handing us the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. He's saying, here, take these, put these on. I don't care about yesterday. It's today that matters. And you're in the battle. You're on the field. You're not riding the bench. I love you and I'm with you. The battle is real. 
We don't get to sit it out. So put on God's armor and don't judge by appearances. Jesus is risen and he's returning. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians and for how it encourages us who can uh, so often uh, self-deprecate, particularly our spiritual lives. We're grateful that you would call sinners like us and that you would live in us and dwell among us and make us new in Jesus. Uh, Help us to take to heart all these words, but particularly these words we looked at this morning. Help us to stand and fight in your armor. Let us be clothed in the gospel Uh, And even as we get knocked down, let us stand up again, not because we have the strength and not because we're good, uh, but because Jesus is risen and he lives in us. Please be glorified in this. Be glorified in how we stand back up. Be glorified in how we face evil. And we long for the day when it will be completely destroyed and consumed. Please come back soon, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.